So um, what I had in mind today is to uh, discuss a little bit, talk about uh, a very famous Buddhist discourse. And uh, I was actually thinking maybe for the next series of Mondays that I'm here uh, to talk on this discourse. And for, in particular for us in our tradition, the uh, insight meditation tradition, this is probably uh, the most or the most important uh, discourse of the Buddha because uh, the practice of insight meditation that we teach uh, has its roots in this particular discourse. And so it's a, it's a discourse uh, called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, um, or the Foundations of Mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta. And, um, and it's very, very important in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition. And it gets recited, it's almost like a mantra, as a magical mantra, on various various uh, times, um, when people die, the monks will come and they'll often recite the Pali, this uh, particular chant. And when they, um, uh, in other other uh, circumstances also, this is chanted um, because it's considered so powerful. Um, so that's what I had in mind for today. And uh, if that's okay with you all of you, uh, it's uh, hot. And uh, maybe it's, uh, I don't know what's coolest, whether I just sit quietly, listen to me uh, discuss this discourse is the coolest thing for us to do, or whether it's cooler for uh, you all to um, ask questions and for me just to respond the best I can or have some discussion about something. And um, uh, So what do you all think? Would you like to hear me hold forth on a discourse? Or would you like to... <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, the yeses were certainly adamant. <laughs> and the nose were not so adamant, so. So the discourse begins this way. Thus have I heard. And all disc- almost all discourses of the Buddha begin this way because uh, the discourse is being recited by someone, uh, usually thought of after the Buddha died, by someone who some way has, had memorized the particular uh, discourse, the particular occasion, the narrative about it, and what happened, and what the Buddha said at that time. And often there was matter of, uh, it was a matter of uh, some discussion, went back and forth between different people. And so um, some of that dis- discourse and discussion was recorded. And generally it's considered that it was the uh, Buddha's attendant named Ananda, who followed the Buddha uh, very closely for some 20 years, had a phenomenal memory uh, that he went along and attended the Buddha and listened to all this and he memorized it all. And then uh, he recounted it to other uh, disciples of the Buddha after the Buddha died. And then it was kind of, it wasn't recorded, but it was uh, memorized by others. And that uh, memorized tradition continued for about 500 years. After about 500 years, uh, Buddhists uh, started writing the texts down. So thus have I heard is Ananda. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country where there was a town of the Kurus named Kamasadama. Kamasadama. Um, the Blessed One is uh, a translation of the word Bhagavan. And maybe some of you remember uh, Bhagavan Rajneesh. Uh, his title was Bhagavan. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita, a similar kind of Bhagavan, Bhagavat. And it's a very common title for something that's quite illustrious 
the word apparently means something like uh, radiant or shining or illustrious in itself, in its etymological roots. And it's used in ancient India to, uh, as a title of respect to someone who uh, was illustrious or illum- illuminated in some way. And sometimes, I believe, sometimes like a university professor is called the Bhagavan. And, uh, but uh, anyway, here it's called the... Ble- in English, it's sometimes translated as the Blessed One. Um, sometimes they have other translations for this term. And um, so he's in this town of the, of the Kurus. And then he addressed the bhikkhus, thus. Bhikkhus means monks. Bhikkhus, and they said, Venerable Sir. And the, bless, the Blessed One said the following. And the rest of the discourse is the Buddha just giving his discourse. And it's uh, somewhat long. And it's considered, as I said, very important because he lays down the description of the four foundations of mindfulness and all the ways in which mindfulness practice is meant to be practiced. What happens historically is that, as with all kind of scripture, is that uh, it's interpreted different ways or different people will t- select out different aspects of the discourse as ways of doing Vipassana practice. And you find in Southeast Asia, where Vipassana practice has continued for 2,000 years, you find uh, many, many, many different techniques of Vipassana practice, of insight meditation. And uh, the particular tradition that we come from um, comes from a particular... Um, comes from a Burma, sometimes called the Burmese method, but even in Burma, there are many, many different methods or techniques. And we, we, our tradition comes from, is derived in a sense from a particular person named Mahasi Sayadaw, who died about 1980, 81. And, um, and he kind of had his own way of kind of systematizing it, organizing it, understanding it. And then he presented it and it was phenomenally popular in Burma. He kind of caught on like wildfire. And um, by the time I was in Burma, there were some like, 500 or 2,000 or more of these of monasteries and meditation centers that derived from him and his teachings. And, and they'd spread all over to, to in the early 60s to Thailand. And my first encounter of Vipassana practice was in Thailand, one of these centers, and then to Sri Lanka, and then to the West. Um, so it's kind of interesting. There's, so many, there's a lot of different ways of doing insight meditation. And if you come to hear a teacher like myself give dis- instructions of how to do this practice, you might think this is the true way. Thank you. Uh, but uh, in fact, um, it's just one way of taking this particular discourse and, uh, and offering how to do this practice. If you read Jack Cornfield's book called, used to be called Living Buddhist Masters. Now it's called Living Dharma because they're all, all but one of them is dead. But it's a, uh, he kind of gives, I think, 18 different teachers, Vipassana teachers, description of how you do Vipassana practice. And guess what? They're all quite different. And one of the very interesting things about the insight meditation movement in the West that Jack Kornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg began in 1974, 76, was they intentionally, very intentionally, wanted to hold all the different traditions of Vipassana under the same roof, or maybe say it a little bit differently, have them available and all in the same roof. So different teachers would come through and teach. And, um, and Jack had this, has a book where he has all these different teachers, 18 teachers in, uh, between two covers. So what happens you know, with religious people often 
is that there's often a tendency for um, um, for judging the other and opinions about who's right and who's wrong and my way is the best and the true way and all this. And uh, and so they said, this is the one way and this is the way you'll do it. And the other people, they don't quite understand it. You know, it's not as efficient or, you know, you, you know there's some kind of judgment about it. <clears throat> but there was a decision made to um, to not to kind of continue that kind of partisan differing that can happen and rather to somehow respect them all, hold them all together and have all the teachings available in some way some way or other and let people learn from the different ways and those people who had an affinity with a particular way would learn that way and they didn't have to feel like they were kind of leaving the true fold uh, by doing this other, other practice. It was all kind of understood to be part of the same scene. So kind of maybe ecumenical is the right word, kind of ecumenical style. But even so, the core instructions or teaching of the insight meditation tradition is this particular guy from a particular style coming from this Mahasi Sayadaw from Burma. Um, so is this okay so far? You know, I was a little bit worried about kind of, you know, giving commentary on a discourse that it would be, you know, a hot day that you know, you'd all be asleep by now. Because that's also often what happens when you hear discourses on sutras. You know, that's, you know, the teacher would go on for three or four hours. And I found that my teachers, they would often spend um, days on the title of the, of the sutra. <laughs> and then there would be hardly any time left for the rest. By then they go, oh yeah, and the rest of the sutra. And they go on. <laughs> but we got through the title, title pretty quickly. <laughs> so then the Buddha is going to start uh, d- uh, giving this discourse. And he says, bhikkhus, bhikkhus means monks. In the commentary to this discourse, the ancient commentary, it says bhikkhus refers to anybody who's seriously endeavoring in the practice. So a layperson can be a bhikkhu in this context. So anybody, so a practitioner, serious practitioners, listen to this. This is the, this is the direct path. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So this is considered kind of like a, a very powerful statement here. Buddha is saying the way to eliminate, to end suffering, to end grief, Sorrow, lamentation, pain. The way to realize Nibbana, Nirvana, the awakening of a Buddha, is these four foundations of mindfulness, which he's, which he's going to describe. He says this is the direct path. The word is very interesting. The, the direct, for the direct path is ekayana. And ekayana uh, is sometimes translated as the one path. And especially in Mahayana discourses, the term ekayana becomes the one path, the, as opposed to the, the Mahayana and the Hinayana and the Vajrayana. Uh, the, there's only one yana. Yana means vehicle. And um, and so in traditionally Buddhism, there's like we think of as people say there's three vehicles. There's a the Theravada, there's the Mahayana, and there's the Vajrayana. And uh, and then you know they get along with varying degrees of success together. They sometimes argue with each other like religious people do about who's best and who's true. But because of that kind of problem of who's right, 
At some point in Mahayana, they came up with the idea of the Ekayana, the one true path. There's only one path. All, all paths lead to the Ekayana, to the one path. They all kind of converge in a sense. Which is not nice. It's not very nice. In the, uh, this, this, this early tradition, Ekayana had a different meaning. And here it meant the direct way or the way that doesn't backslide. If you take this way, you, it only goes in one direction. You don't, you're not going to backslide. Um, the, um, but you see it's sometimes translated elsewhere as there is one way, which I think is, is a mistranslation. It's the obvious translation. Eka means one and yana means vehicle or, or way. But, um, but here it means the direct path. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh calls this, there is, in his translation, he's very poetic in his translations often, and he translated it as, as there is a most wonderful way. <laughs> and that certainly solves the problem of there is the one way. But there is a direct way, there's an efficient way, there's a useful way to follow for the purification of beings. So this is kind of nice. This is, he's going to describe the way. And this discourse then describes a direct path for the attainment of liberation, or freedom, freedom from suffering. Um, and it's somewhat unusual in the discourses of the Buddha to have it all laid out in one place. Uh, and it's a very simple and very direct. Some commenta- commentators say it's called the direct way because it's the most direct in that it does not go through... Um, uh, It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not a path that requires first developing uh, concentration. Traditionally, there's another way of doing the Buddhist path, which involves developing a tremendously high degree of concentration, and then using that concentration to access um, to then to do this, this this insight practice. And here, by saying it's the direct way, is saying you don't have to do that roundabout way through concentration. You can just do it directly uh, by doing the four foundations of mindfulness. And then he's going to um, dis- define what the four foundations of mindfulness are. Now, to kind of give you a sense of how important the four foundations of mindfulness are in the tradition, at the end of the Buddha's life, one of the last discourses, last teachings the Buddha gave, uh, he said, oh, now, I'm going to teach you what it is I discovered in my spiritual life, in my awakening. You know, at the end of his life, he's going to summarize it all and put it all out. This is what I discovered. What is it a Buddha discovers? What is the truth? What is this view of the, of the world? What's the insight into the nature of reality? What is it that he discovered? And what he says he discovered, the primary thing he said he discovered, was he discovered the four foundations of mindfulness. He said, he said a few other things also, but they, all of these things were either practices or qualities of mind that a practitioner cultivates as they practice. So it was, it, he didn't make any, any philosophical or metaphysical view, views about, you know, this is the nature of reality, this is the nature of the mind. He didn't make any statements about the nature of anything. He didn't lay down these teachings, this is the way things are. Rather, he said, what I discovered was a path, was practices, and particular states of mind that come along with those practices as you develop them. So I think I take I take that very significant. It's a very significant thing the Buddha did. Um, it you know it kind of frees in a sense the Buddha's path from metaphysics. You don't have to believe in anything in order to try out the practices. And this was the experiences of a lot of us who went to Asia to practice, and hopefully here also, is that the teachers that we who taught us to do this practice, 
they had no interest in converting us to become Buddhists. I never had any sense that anyone has any interest in making us Buddhist. And it was never came up in conversation, never came up as an issue. Um, they, uh, they were quite happy if you came as a Jew or as a Christian or as a Muslim or whatever you came. And there was no idea that you had to stop being that in order to do this practice. And what I've seen is sometimes people come from their birth religion uh, that they maybe grew up with and maybe they're, they're disillusioned with it for a while. They have been disillusioned with it. And they come and start doing Buddhist practice. And the Buddhist practice gives them a new kind of Dharma eye, a new way of understanding or seeing that they can see, look back at their, their original religion in a different way. Say, oh, I didn't know there was that depth there. I didn't know they did the thing, those things there. And then they kind of find themselves happier again with their original religion. The, the disillusionment falls away. So that's a nice thing that happens. Um, so the, the, the practice is offered without having without anybody need to become a Buddhist or to believe in anything except believe in the efficacy, in the usefulness of engaging these particular practices. So then he's going to describe what these four foundations of mindfulness are. Here, a bhikkhu, a monk, abides contemplating or being mindful, abides being mindful of the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He or she abides contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He or she abides contemplating mind as mind, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. So the four foundations are the body, feelings, which has a different meaning than what we usually think of in English as feelings. We'll come to that. Um, The mind, and then something that's called the mind objects. And um, and then there's this repetition each time. And when you read the diff- discourses of the Buddha, you, you should kind of, when you hear repetition, you shouldn't get bored. And you shouldn't kind of, kind of get tired. Oh, I've heard that before and shut down. You should, I think it's mo- most useful to take it as kind of almost lit- liturgy. It has a mnemonic effect. It has a kind of, it's kind of like the effect of rhythm, like a, like the refrain in a song. You know, usually you don't get too bored with the refrain in a song, right? You kind of like, you look forward to it, start again, and you kind of know the words the second time around, and, you know. And it kind of ha- kind of has an impact on you. So you kind of like take it as the refrain, and you kind of let, let those words kind of impact you, kind of open your mind. Oh, these are important words. Can I relax? Can I let them kind of sink into my mind and my heart in a deeper way? Is there something I can do, you know, rather than shutting off or glazing over? So, it says... The, the refrain part says, um, ardent, fully aware, mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. So these are the requirements of a practitioner. Um, they're quite high standards or requirements. Uh, one must be ardent. Ardent means kind of, you know, energetic and dedicated. Um, fully aware, to be awake and pay attention as best one can. Mindful. And then there's an interesting thing called 
putting away covetousness and grief for the world. This is usually uh, uh, explained as having put away desire and aversion towards the world, towards things of the world. You don't want anything in the world and you're not aversive or resisting anything in the world. This is not a statement that um, about the world, the nature of the world is you know, undesirable, you shouldn't be involved in it. But if you want to do this meditation practice, as you close your eyes and do this, if, you're st- if your mind is still caught up in the things of the world, what happened at work today, what's going to happen tomorrow, or but whether or not you're going to win the California lottery or not, or whether you're going to... Well, or the other one lottery we're having on October 7th. Are some of you in it, in the lottery? <laughs> and um, so, um, the, um, so somehow you have to kind of put that away. Now, some people kind of shake, scratch their heads when they read this part of the discourse because they thought the very reason why they were doing mindfulness practice was so they could put aside their desire and aversion to the world. The very reason for doing it was so they can become fully aware and mindful. And here you're being told you have to be able to do this before you do the practice. <laughs> so uh, don't get discouraged. <laughs> it's kind of maybe kind of like one of those things where, you know, this is kind of true in a certain level, but, you know, it's learning how to do it, which is so much the practice. And so you start off being very poor at it, perhaps, and then with time you're develop yourself and develop yourself until you can do it at this level. But I think it's very helpful to see this expression, having put away covetousness and grief for the world, having put away desire and aversion to the world. To, that it's very helpful to understand that the principle of meditation requires you or calls upon you to let the mind rest from its incessant preoccupation with the thoughts that have to do about the world. About, you know, the world includes so much. It includes ourselves, too. We're part of the world as much as anything else. But have desire towards ourselves, you know, uh, or desire or aversion towards ourselves. Or meditation doesn't belong to that part of, the, that part of human experience that where we negotiate the world as for, being for and against it. So there's a kind of a, a turning then, it says turning the mind around from the way that it usually engages in the world. Usually, most of the minds are involved constantly in engaging in the things of the world, for, against, afraid, or desiring. And we, cl- and we see how powerful this is when we close our eyes and try to be still, try to be, be aware. And there's a tremendous momentum of the mind to still pick up things we obsess about. And I would doubt that any of you obsess about things could not be called things of the world. Do you? Some of you obsessed about something else? <laughs> so it's very difficult, of course, to stop that obsessing and to do this instructions to put it away. But it, I, I believe it helps if you know the principle that it's not interesting in meditation. It is not helpful for your meditation. It's not useful to pick up these thoughts and start thinking about your the California lottery or thinking about your vacation or thinking about your spouse or your partner or thinking about what kind of car to get or think about, you know, all these things we can think about. If you know, at least logically, if you know intellectually that this is not what meditation is about, then it can be a lot easier to let go of them. But if you're not convinced of that, you will think that thinking about the California lottery, the equivalent, is like the most important thing you have to do right now. 
planning what's going to happen for the next 30 years of your life is certainly much more important. It's crucial, right? And it has to happen right now while you're sitting here meditating. So, I think I've said that enough. (laughs) And then, so these four foundations, body, feelings, mind, and mind objects. Here the translation is contemplating the body as a body. Other translations say uh, contemplating or being mindful of the body in the body. Someone else says being mindful of the body in and of itself. And that's usually the way of understanding this is that part of the training is to learn how to pay attention to your body in some way. We'll get to that. Or your feelings or your these different things. But in and of themselves, in their simplicity. So just the body. Without what we think about our body or without what we feel about our body. Um, without, you know, just what is the experience of your body in and of itself? So it's a kind of simplifying the way we experience something that usually we experience in more complicated ways. Uh, many of us have very complicated relationships with our body and the sensations and experiences of our body. But here can just, in and of itself, just this, how it is right now. And some people find that that's a very liberating part of mindfulness practice, starting to have the ability to just sit down and be quiet and allow your experience to be what it is. And, and learn how to pay attention to it in and of itself as it actually is, independent of your interpretations. And what you'll find, hopefully, is it's not so easy to be, uh, not hopefully, but what you probably find is that it's not so easy to experience yourself, your immediate experiences, without interpretation. And part of the training of mindfulness is to learn to see how interpretations operate, how the mind lays, overlays these inter- interpretations and complicates what's going on. And as you see that, to learn to simplify, simplify, so you can just experience something in and of itself as it actually is. So now, the Buddha is going to start describing how to practice mindfulness of the body. What's going to go on for the next parts of this discourse, he's going to go systematically through these four foundations of mindfulness and describe them in detail. Some of them he describes very quickly, and some of them he describes in, in, you know, in some length. The mindfulness of the body, he describes in some length. And what he actually describes here is nine different ways of contemplating the body in and of itself. Nine different, way, nine different approaches or practices of developing greater sensitivity to your body and using your body as a vehicle for the Buddhist path. So the, fir- and the, so the first of these nine exercises, nine ways... And I'll just I'll talk about this and then end with this first one for tonight. Is the mindfulness of breathing. The mindfulness of breathing is a subcategory of mindfulness of the body. And how monks does a monk abide contemplating body as body? Here, a monk, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down having folded his or her legs crosswise, sets his or her body erect and established mindfulness in front of in front of him or herself. So here, a monk goes to the forest, to the root of a tree or to an empty hut. The idea here is to go someplace that's kind of quiet, someplace where you're not going to be distracted by the things of the world, 
where people aren't going to call you up on your cell phone. You're supposed to leave your cell phone out, outside before you're, going to, before you're going to the forest. And your beeper and your computer. And so it goes someplace where there's not a lot. And here it says, to an empty hut, to an empty room. Someplace, again, where there's not a lot of things that you have to kind of distract you and to engage you. And, and um, it's amazing how, you know, you go to meditate in some place. Like if you go on retreat for a long time, and how the mind sometimes really wants to be distracted. And, um, and you know, maybe some of you had the experience of meditating in the morning for maybe 40 minutes or half an hour or something. And suddenly this tremendous urge comes up. It seems really crucial at that particular moment, that particular time, to de- defrost the freezer. <laughs> it has to happen now. So, you know, not to get distracted, but you just stay focused. And when I was in these simple huts in Asia, I remember... I would be months and months and months in these little empty, basically empty rooms except for the bed and, and the little desk perhaps and my few things I had. And, um, and there was nothing to read. I didn't have any books, you know. There was nothing to read. And day after day, just you know, silence, not talking to anybody, sitting and walking meditation. And, and, um, but what I, what I kind of got distracted by was um, all the um, words on the can of Metamucil that I had. I probably read that can Metamucil instructions more than anybody on the planet because that was all there was to read so you go to an empty place a quiet place sits down and unfolds one's legs sits cross-legged it's a classic way of sitting and um, it's kind of nice also the idea of sitting cross-legged because you don't need a chair it's just simple and back in the old days they didn't have these afus and then having established mindfulness in front of oneself. No one knows what this expression means, but just kind of having established oneself and being present. Okay, here I am, I'm present. You kind of establish, establish oneself being present. And then, mindfully, one breathes in. No, um, and mindfully, one breathes out. Mindfully, uh, breathing in long, one understands, I'm I am breathing in a long breath. Or breathing out a long, one understands, I breathe out a long breath. Breathing in short, one understands, I breathe in short. Breathing out short, one understands, I breathe out short. So this is very simple. And, you know, its simplicity is almost, you know, you know, boring or almost kind of like, I'm going to do that. Is, as you breathe, to be aware that you're breathing. When you're breathing in, you're where you're breathing in, out, out. And then to be aware of the quality, characteristic of your breath, to be aware that it's a long breath or a short breath. To track these things, to be aware of it. And each one, breath after breath, to hang in with the rhythm of your breathing. So that one breath after the other, one after the other. And being with the rhythm of the breathing can be a very helpful way of staying connected to it. It's kind of a rhythm to the breath. And its rhythm changes over time, but to kind of get a sense of that, it's a helpful way of kind of staying connected over many breaths. Um, and very simple, just, just how it is, in and of itself, the breath. It's a very powerful practice. Um, it's, the Buddha once went on a three-month retreat where he went into the forest by himself for three months to meditate. And um, before he left, he told people, if anybody wants to know what I'm doing, you can tell them I'm practicing mindfulness of breathing. Then the, then the instructions go on. Breathing out... Um, I shall breathe in. Oh, 
uh, I will train myself thus. I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. I shall train myself thus. I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. No one knows for sure what this means, experiencing the whole body. You find different interpretations. Some people say it means being... The whole body means the whole length of each in-breath and whole length of each out-breath. So the beginning, middle, and end of the in-breath, the beginning, middle, and end of the out-breath. So it's not not like you're kind of just doing a checklist approach to the breath. You know, you have an in-breath, you check that off, and then you can kind of space out until the out-breath comes. You check that off, and then you can space out for a while. But you kind of kind of like... You want to keep your connection with the full inhalation, the whole length of it. (coughs) My teacher in Burma said it's kind of like if you're polishing a brass bowl and yet you put your, you know, your cloth up against the, the, the bowl and you need to, in order to polish it, you have to keep that cloth rubbing against the bowl. You have to keep contact the whole time. And so you need to keep, you have to rub your mind, your awareness with the breath or rub your breath with your mind. So the two stay in, stay in touch with each other. Other people uh, translate this expression, um, experiencing the whole breath body, as being being aware of the full global sense of breathing in your whole body. So your whole body. So you can kind of get a sense, you know, of your breathing, of your chest going out, your back rib cage sometimes moving and expanding as you breathe in. Breathe in. Your shoulders go up. Your belly moves in and rises and falls. Um, you can be aware of sometimes pressure or being pushed down into your uh, pelvic cavity. And sometimes if you're very sensitive, you can feel uh, little uh, rhythmic sensations uh, moving down into your uh, thighs, perhaps your legs, and sometimes down your arms and up into your, your neck area. And certainly feel it sometimes in your nostrils, the breath coming in. So wherever the kind of widest sense of the, how the body experiences the breathing, the expansion and contraction, is the whole breath body and for some people. And some people really get into that whole sense of the breath moving through the body. And some people love it that way, just find a very compelling way of staying with the breath. Other people find it much more compelling to stay at one place, like the nostrils or the belly or the chest, and having one place as the anchor, that's a focal point, just hang on there, uh, is most helpful. Then he goes on to say, you train yourself thus, I shall breathe in tranquilizing the bodily formations. I shall breathe out tranquilizing bodily formations. So here, from the beginning, it was just a matter of experiencing how things actually are. No attempt to manipulate it. But here, there's an attempt to try to change the experience. And here the instructions is to tranquilize or to calm your body. Calm the bodily formations. The formations is that part of your body. It's a kind of technical word in Buddhism, uh, sankharas. Uh, But uh, the... The uh, bodily formations is that part of your body that has been conditioned by your mind, by how you think and how your mind reacts to things. So, you know, there's many ways, right, that that happens in some obvious ways. And medicine nowadays points out more and more ways in which the mind seems to affect our physiology. And uh, maybe some people would say, you know, our whole physical body in some ways tied into how the mind conditions it. So here, so, but the idea is that part of the mind which is conditioned or affected, that part of the body which has some, is affected by the, by the mind, you're going to tranquilize that part of your body. So, you know, if, you, if your t- shoulders are tense, you kind of calm your shoulders. If your belly is tight, you, you relax your belly. Stephen Levine has this really wonderful meditation 
a number of his books called The Soft Belly Meditation. And uh, some people find it very helpful. Some people, some people find it very challenging because if you spend a lifetime with the belly kind of tightened up, it can be very um, uncomfortable, very frightening even, to begin to relax your belly and let whatever is in that tightness kind of show itself. Um, but here you're kind of doing something. You begin to use the breath, and letting the breath kind of calm you, calm your body, to kind of massage you from the inside as, you, as the breath kind of expands and contracts. As you exhale, to kind of ride or rest in the exhalation. Be soothed by the breath. Whatever it takes to let the breath kind of calm and tranquilize your body. Um, just as a skilled turner, uh, kind of like a lathe turner, or his apprentice, when making a long turn, understands I make a long turn, or when making a short turn, understands I make a short turn, so too breathing in long, a monk understands I breathe in long, I shall breathe out, and so forth, until the last one. Okay, last paragraph for this section. In this way, one abides contemplating the body as a body internally, and one abides contemplating the body as a body externally, or one abides contemplating the body as a body both internally and externally, or else one abides contemplating in the... So so here, one just pays a very careful attention to one's inner body, which does these exercises with the breath, paying attention to what goes on inside one's body as one does this. Then there's this expression of paying attention to doing this externally. No one knows what this means, as best I can figure out. However, some people, uh, some of the commentaries will say this, what this means is you do people watching. And you watch other people's breath go in and out. So you go hang out, you know, in the street corner someplace in Palo Alto and, you know, and, you know, you maybe sit in an outdoor cafe, Cafe Baroni or something, and you watch people walk, walk by, you watch them sitting there, and, you know, you, you kind of sit there and watch their breath. That's what it means to well, pay attention to the breath externally. Um, probably not a good thing, idea to do unless the person has agreed that you can sit there and watch their breath. <laughs> And why is this useful? I don't know. And, but uh, no one knows what this really means. And I have some of my doubts that that's what it means. But that's what... Or, and here's another way of doing a practice. Or, the person abides contemplating the body as, uh, in the body, um, or else he abides con- contemplating in the body its nature of arising. Or one abides contemplating in the body its nature of vanishing. Or when a body is contemplating the body, its nature of both arising and vanishing. And you, normally in meditation, your body doesn't vanish. And there can be that experience of not, it doesn't vanish, but um, our, our sense of experiencing the body disappears entirely. So we don't have, we can't find any, any experience of, of a body. But your body hasn't disappeared. If you opened your eyes, you'd see it. But you know, you, it feels like it's not there. But that's not what it means here. What it means here is that uh, um, it's two, two, two general interpretations. One is that um, the, the specific sensations of your body that you're paying attention to, they have the nature of arising and passing. And as you're doing this practice, you pay attention to, this, to the rising and passing of the specific sensations as they arise and pass. Another approach to this is you, you, you just notice the causes and conditions that give birth to your body. So the, 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 um, the, the bodily formations, the part of your body that's affected by the mind, 
you begin seeing how that part, these parts of the body come into being. The tensions is there, the holding, and all these different things. And how they vanish. There's a third thing. Or else, mindful, mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in that person to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And the person abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a monk abides contemplating the body as a body. So, one abides independent. This is a very important function of mindfulness practice, of meditation practice, is learn how to find that capacity of mind, that part of the psyche that can be independent from the things of the world, independent from those things in which the mind knows. And the luminous, clear mind, which is not caught by anything, but feels itself independent and free. So it cultivates this practice until you come to that point. So this is the first exercise, mindfulness of the breath. You might want to try it during this next week. Try practicing mindfulness of the breath, the simplicity of just being with the breath, being with the rhythm of breath. You might try um, seeing what luck you might have in in um, using the breath to help tranquilize and quiet the mind, uh, the body, to calm it. Um, and you might uh, pay very careful attention to what happens within you, in your body, as you do this exercise, these exercises with the breath. How does your body? How does your body change? What do you learn about your body? What do you discover? about your body as you do this kind of mindfulness of the breathing exercise. Um, so that's it. So what do you think? Is this interesting enough for you to have me kind of go through this? That I should continue over the next weeks this? And those of you who didn't find it interesting you can come out of faith or you can go on Thursdays or Sunday or something. And um, I think it'd be very nice to go through this, and uh, and uh, I'll try next time to stop much earlier, so we can have questions. And there's a lot of issues that come up around this, especially those of you who practice some time and different ways of doing it and all that. And um, and um, so please have a wonderful week, and it'll be really wonderful if you take this instructions on the breath to heart for the week. Thank you. <laughs>